0: In the Christian life, we are becoming kinds of people. We need to think about this reality often. We are becoming a certain kind of person, a person who fears the Lord, a person whose heart has been brought from death to life. Our old life in Adam no longer dominates and enslaves our affections and hearts. Rather, we've been freed from the penalty and power of sin that we might walk in newness of life. Our baptism communicates this. Our pursuit of Christ is because of this. We have been redeemed. And in being redeemed, we are becoming a certain kind of person. The Son of God, through his word and spirit, is forming us. Think of discipleship as formation. We're following. That is what a disciple does. And as we follow, we are not the same sort of people in going after Christ. Discipleship is a journey in formation. It is growing up in Christ. And you are a disciple for the years the Lord gives you. A Christian and a disciple are the same thing. And we need to think about this reality. For many might call themselves with a kind of vague meaning oh, I'm a Christian or I'm a believer. A disciple is a word that means the same idea. That's what a Christian is, a Christ follower. But to use that word in our culture, I think it can even communicate with greater precision, Jesus is master and Lord. I'm a disciple. That's what it means to be a Christian. And as a disciple, I'm learning what it means to grow up in Christ. We therefore must talk. In such growth and in maturing in our faith, we must talk about virtue and character in the Christian life. It's true that ancient philosophers and thinkers wrote much about virtues and character, but that doesn't mean those subjects belong to a secular or non-Christian category. The Bible commends godly character and virtue formation. What if we thought in one sense that the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 was a Pauline way of talking about Christian virtue? He says, after all, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And if you read ancient writers and thinkers who meditate on and reflect on what it means to mature and grow in virtue they will talk about such things we are interested in these things therefore as image bearers in God's world but we are most of all interested in these things because of how they can reflect upon the heart of Christ and how in following Christ growing up in Jesus we are attending to character formation Christian character The result of living in submission to and in harmony with the word of God and spirit of Christ. Character and virtue is not more self-help stuff. The biblical instruction we find in Proverbs is not more self-help stuff that we can find, you know, in the world more generally, but it is certainly help for yourself. The surpassing wisdom of God in Scripture is not insignificant to the self that you are. In fact, these instructions and in Proverbs and the wisdom of God throughout the Word of God helps us to grow up in Christ as we embrace it. Growing up in Jesus requires to the embracing and embodiment of wisdom. It's a practical question we have to ask all the time. What does God want for my life? What kind of person am I called to be? And answers to those questions are found throughout Proverbs. What does God want for my life? What sort of person am I called to be? Well, you open up Proverbs. Here's 31 chapters of God's will for your life. The kind of man or woman that you are called to be in following after Christ. As Christians, we're wanting our lives to be lived in relation to this larger biblical story. We want to see ourselves in light of the proclamation of God's work in Christ, all that he's promised, all that he's accomplished. In other words, to grow up in Christ is to live in light of the reality that scripture is the authority over and guiding our lives. God rules by his word. Even forming creation, he speaks his word and let there be light. And there was light. God rules in might by his word. And he's made himself known in the holy scriptures. And I think Matt Chandler is right. He pastors in Texas and he said once that if you're not confident in the authority of scriptures, you'll be a slave to whatever sounds right to you. If you're not confident in the authority of the scriptures, you'll be a slave to whatever sounds right to you. I think Chandler's correct. I think it's a pastoral insight that pierces to a, into the, the realms of our larger culture with its suspicion of authority in all different spheres, especially biblical authority. Well, the Bible says, and then immediately somebody's eyebrow might be raised. Well, you know, everybody's got their own truth, right? The authority of scripture is what guides and rules over the lives of God's people. And therefore, as we submit to the word of God and seek to walk in line with the spirit of God, to bless the Lord and praise the Lord and honor the Lord, we are pursuing Christ and growing. We are, let's call it the way Paul called it in 1 Timothy 4, we are training ourselves for godliness. 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, train yourself for godliness, Paul says. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. You see, Paul wants you to think more about than just your present. He wants you to think about your present and your future and therefore the pursuit of godliness ought to be the foremost thing upon your heart. What kind of person am I called to be? What does God want for my life? As I pursue Christ to grow in him, what are the sorts of things my mind should attend to? Well, again, we think about the helpfulness of Proverbs. And in verse 16, we're introduced to a contrast as we seek to pursue wisdom and as we will look to see what Solomon has for us this morning. And we find ourselves facing again the prudent person and the fool. Here's the contrast. The prudent person or the fool. Verse 16 says, every prudent person acts with knowledge, but a fool flaunts his folly. And I think the contrast must be that the fool doesn't act with knowledge, which the prudent person does act with. In other words, part of the reason the fool's folly is flaunted is because the wise or prudent person acts with knowledge, not so the fool To be prudent, what does that refer to? A prudent person is restrained. They're not rash and reckless. A prudent person is appropriately cautious. They're not trying to live in fear. They're seeking to live thoughtfully. They're not acting impulsively and recklessly in the decisions they make in life. They think about what they're going to do. And the knowledge that the prudent person acts with, the prudent person acts with knowledge. Well, all of us must act. We have choices every day. Even to not do something is itself a choice. So everybody's acting. Everybody's making choices. The prudent person acts in a particular way. And I think the knowledge referred to here must be the knowledge that informs the choice, which means it's a wise move and not folly. The fool flaunts his folly. He does not act with the knowledge he should. The knowledge must be of what the prudent person knows or at least acquires to lead them in a particular way. They're faced with a choice, and they think, well, I don't want to be reckless about this. I don't want to be thoughtless and rash. I don't want to just go by whatever impulse arises to the top at the first. They want to grow in knowledge about what to do. They might reflect on a decision. They might invite the counsel of others. They might let some time accumulate as they consider the consequences and implications. They're, they're trying to act with knowledge. They're not just faced with a decision and say, all right, I have 10 seconds to make a decision. They don't, they don't want to approach life that way. Now, I'm not saying you're never faced with a 10-second decision. I just mean the pattern of their life, the trajectory of their life is, I want to give thought to my steps. This past Saturday, we were in Indianapolis and uh, we were visiting some family and watching a game and there was a nature reserve that we dropped off uh, or that we went to, we didn't drop anybody off, we <laughs> went to um, and spent some time at beforehand. And there are some signs and there are some trails and there's poison ivy everywhere. The main feature at this nature reserve turns out to be poison ivy. And uh, that's not true, but uh, it certainly seemed that way. When you when you look at these paths. They were quite narrow and sometimes going through different areas by swamps and up different steps. And you're going around and you're seeing this place full of different ecosystems. Very fun to look at. Very hot Um, for Saturday afternoon, as you know. And yet, looking at the surroundings, you couldn't just look around you without watching your steps, You might end up in a swamp. Uh, You you might end up in the poison ivy, which was everywhere if I haven't told you that. Um, Instead, you have to give thought to your steps as you're moving forward so that you can enjoy, so that you can take in, so that you can do what you're there to do, but giving sight to where you're putting your feet is of utmost importance. Disaster awaits you if not. A prudent man, It didn't say it didn't say most prudent people like maybe you're the sort of prudent person. You don't have to act with knowledge. That's not what this says. Every prudent man acts with knowledge. A prudent person gathers information to think about the steps in front of them. And it's not because they can control everything. It's not because the outcome is certain. It's because the right next step is what will be wisest and honoring to the Lord, and they've thought about it. Every prudent person acts with knowledge, but the verse doesn't end there. There's a second half, and it's the contrast with the fool. But a fool flaunts his folly. Now, to flaunt something means to show it off. Now, I don't think the second half of the verse has to mean that the fool is proud of his foolishness, though that could be the case. This could be a clever way for the writer to say the fool is putting on full display his foolishness. It means that the fool acts in a way that is obvious to others. The fool flaunts his folly. Something that's flaunted is flaunted to be seen. A fool cannot keep his folly Subtle, for very long at least. Even if the fool is not proud of his folly, though in his foolishness or her foolishness it could be the case, foolishness will not remain hidden, it seeps out, maybe gushes out in some decisions. One writer puts it this way, the basic message of this proverb is that a man's wisdom or folly is seen in how he behaves and speaks. That means... What matters to our hearts, the affections that direct our lives, the desires we seek to orient our lives according to, they cannot remain hidden. The prudent man will have to act and it will be clear whether prudence is indeed the case. The fool will flaunt their folly and their foolishness will become known. In other words, your character is revealed by decisions that you make. Both the prudent and the fool reveal who they are in what they do. Think of the parable at the end of Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount. The big takeaway parable after Jesus has given this entire sermon covering all these different subjects and all these different metaphors and illustrations, he ends on a building illustration. And he says, you can know who the wise builder is and who the foolish builder is by the foundation they choose to build their life on. And the person who hears these words of mine and says, I will build upon that, that's the wise person. They are taking in, embracing, seeking to embody the wisdom of Christ to follow and grow up in him. They're wanting to mature in him. They're wanting to be sanctified in him. The fool, the fool hears the words of Christ, chooses a different foundation that is unstable. And when judgment comes, there's no security. The fool, even on the last day, will have their foolishness known. Acting with knowledge, let's be clear, is not an enemy of faith. Maybe you hear the first part of the verse and it says a prudent man or every prudent man acts with knowledge. And you think, well, wait a second, I thought I'm supposed to walk by faith. We have to think about how these things go together because the Bible is not going to give you one instruction to direct your moral life in the Old Testament and then say, hey, in the New Testament, hey, you know what? That wasn't really a great idea. Let's just walk by faith. No, instead, it's talking about here thinking wisely, not recklessly about decisions and is not an enemy of trusting the Lord with the future and with the present of not being consumed with and overcome by worry, but walking by faith in that you do not see clearly in this world. You want to take the next step in what will honor God and be wise, but you want to live in trust of the Lord. This knowledge referred to in verse 16 is not an enemy of faith. Gathering information doesn't mean you're not trusting the Lord. Asking questions and asking for counsel to to, uh, give you more things to ask and think about That's not a lack of faith. Practical questions. A prudent man here in verse 16 acts with knowledge. Well, What if you're looking for a new job? Well, you don't want to say, well, there is a new job over there. I think I'll just agree to that. I bet if you've gone to apply to a new job, you've done some research, some information gathering, some question asking. Nobody would accuse you rightly of not acting by faith, you know, by saying, well, wait a second, you know, can we talk about benefits and salary? Can we talk about work hours and location? Can we just none of that is an enemy of faith? What if you're investigating an accusation? What if you're trying to find a new place to live? What if you're thinking about applying for a degree program? What if you're interested in dating or marrying someone who feels the same way about you? I bet you've tried to acquire some knowledge. You ask questions, you seek counsel, and all along we find that one of the ways the good providence of the Lord guides us is through that kind of thoughtful, wise deliberation. And it's not because we're omniscient. It's not because we see the future clearly. It's because God will guide his people through wisdom as they seek it and welcome it. A disciple's life is not a life lived on instinct. Walking by faith should not be equated with, well, I'm going to do the first thing that comes to mind or what's my gut level reaction. I'm just going to go with that. Oh man, that can be disastrous, right? And one of the reasons is the shadows of our old life in Adam have influenced our instincts. So that means we need more than just gut level reactions to things. Our instincts can be wrong. So the righteous and prudent person, they also think about consequences to their actions. They act with knowledge. What does the Bible teach about this? Does the Bible identify this as a temptation and a sin? Why? What are the tragedies that come to one's life in pursuing that or in the lives of others that that are harmed by the decision of an individual? In other words, they seek to think about the harm that sin brings and where temptation leads. Every prudent person acts with knowledge. But the fool, they just fall into many griefs. That they would otherwise be spared from. The righteous or prudent person is spared many griefs that are not, that's not the case for the fool plunging headlong into folly. Think of the prudence of Jesus the majestic, excellent, sinless prudence of Jesus. Never reckless, every word and every action wise and righteous. We follow him. We are his disciples. Verse 17 gives us another contrast. A wicked messenger and a faithful messenger. Now the second half of the verse calls this messenger an envoy. E-N-V-O-Y. An envoy is a messenger. So same idea. It's a person sent to represent another. There's probably some kind of communication or message. Ancient, Ancient rulers used envoys all the time. Messengers were very commonplace because it's not as if you had a particular place of leadership in this part of the ancient Near East that you could just leave and go somewhere else to communicate. And it's not like you could, you know, send an email. I mean, you sent a messenger. That's what you did. When you read verse 17, you're very much feeling the reality of the ancient world where they depended on messengers to communicate. A faithful envoy brings healing, the verse says. So the fullness of verse 17, a wicked messenger falls into trouble, but a faithful envoy brings healing. You see, this again is a character issue. This again brings to mind the idea of prudence in verse 16 and foolishness in verse 16. It overlaps because the prudent and the fool become here the wicked messenger and the faithful envoy. We've not abandoned the path of wisdom, and now we're talking about being a faithful envoy. It's the same thing. We've not left the idea of being a fool and are now talking about a wicked messenger. We're talking about the ways that foolishness can manifest. One of the ways that foolishness in verse 16 manifests in verse 17 is with an unfaithful mouth. This kind of messenger at the beginning of verse 17 is undesirable, a wicked messenger. No one asks for that kind of volunteer. Would a wicked messenger please come forward? A faithful envoy is what everybody would want. Wisdom literature in the ancient world, as one writer pointed out, is very much concerned with instructing their ambassadors so that when you're sent on behalf of someone, you are a faithful envoy. Now, why would somebody be a wicked messenger? What would they do that would lead them not just to be a messenger, but a wicked one? would be the result of that journey. Let's consider that one reason they would be a wicked messenger is they twist the message. They think, well, you know what? I know he said to say this, but I think. So to manipulate or to twist the content for malicious reasons, out of selfishness, A guy named Charles Bridges, an ancient commentator on this, not ancient in uh, the sense of the ancient world, but uh, older than me. Um, He says, Charles Bridges says, a wicked messenger betrays trust, damages his master, and as a just recompense falls into mischief. It tells us in verse 17, a wicked messenger falls into trouble. He might think, okay, you know what? I want it to go this way because of this result. And then he realizes that his unfaithfulness has sown something and he's going to reap a falling into trouble that he did not want. And now in the ancient world, if you took the king's word into your own hands and molded it the way you wanted, you just took your own life into your hands. Your life might not be going on for much longer. A wicked messenger falls into trouble. Yes, indeed, into great griefs brought upon by the wicked messenger's own twistedness. What if the messenger decides not to arrive at all? He just stops along the way and fails to deliver the message. What if the message needed to be delivered in a certain time? And he said, "Ah, you know, I think they're just overestimating how quickly this needs to get there. And he arrives too late. What if the messenger only says part of the message? What if he changes or manipulates the information? All of this would be examples of how a wicked messenger can then fall into trouble A faithful messenger, a faithful envoy is different. They're prudent. They have character. Ultimately, their commitment is to do what is right, true, wise, good. A faithful envoy is not faithful in a relative sense. Let's think of, you know, a wicked organization that says, I want you to go and tell these people this over here. The Bible wouldn't consider that a faithful envoy because character and virtue is not undergirding all of what's happening. A faithful envoy is someone committed to what is right and true. Someone who can be counted on. Someone who is responsible. A faithful envoy, it tells us in verse 17, brings healing. Well, you see, one of the, one of the reasons you might need a messenger in the ancient world is if some kind of conflict arose. Some kind of tension, some kind of breach, a breach in trust or a breach in domestic relations, international relations. You just conceive of the possibility and you need somebody to step into the gap to mend that, to bring healing. This is not talking about a physical illness here. This is talking about the kinds of things that happen in human relationships. And sometimes when there's this party over here and this party over here that are in conflict, a messenger of healing can be used because they are faithful, dependable, trustworthy. One commentator says, the success of the ambassador's mission depends on inner stability, integrity, conscientiousness, the virtues essential. For any responsible service. And he's right. That's exactly the kind of qualities that would characterize a faithful envoy. Let's think about different relationships then. Let's say you're in a conflict with an individual, and the tension just seems to persist. Well, have you considered a faithful envoy who brings healing? That that's the idea here that verse 17 would suggest. A kind of go-between that could help. Make communication clear, edifying, and toward the end of resolution. You could zoom out to an international situation. Maybe you're a country, and you're sending out your ambassador to another country to speak on behalf of you. Well, you don't want a wicked messenger, do you? You want a faithful envoy. You want someone who's going to represent you well and not be wicked. The consequences on a national scale could be disastrous. Let's say you're preaching and teaching the Bible. If you're an unfaithful ambassador, you're no help to the souls of anybody. But how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. A faithful envoy brings healing. And people who are committed to truth and integrity, people who are embodying wisdom, this is what we are drawn toward, even in the human sphere, even in our sinfulness. We hold up examples of those who stand in the gap, who pursue honor and peace and trustworthiness and responsibility and sacrifice. And we give side glances and, and crunched faces to wickedness and betrayal and deceit. We know, even amidst the sins' effect and causing the depraved faculties of our being, we still, in our image-bearing state, know that faithfulness is right, and that being a wicked messenger is wrong. It could be that the faith, that the uh, wicked messengers end up causing more trouble than was at the, at the start. For example, verse 17 says that a faithful envoy brings healing. One way the wicked messenger causes and, and creates and brings trouble is he makes a situation that was bad even worse. You ever been in a situation like that and somebody was going to, well, let me help you with this. And then by the time they were done with it, everything was just a mess. More of a mess than it was. In Proverbs 12, 18, it says, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. In Proverbs fifteen four, a gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Uh, faithful messengers, they want to enter into a situation and bring healing. When we think of wisdom, when we think of prudence, when we think of integrity and character, we're thinking about these kinds of things, the decisions we have to make that are before us all the time in relationships God has given us. Now, it can be the case that someone hears godly instruction and exhortation and they just reject it. They don't want to hear it. They want nothing to do with it, in fact. That's not, it's, just, it's not just one ear and out the other. They don't even want it in the ear. In verse 18, a contrast is introduced for us about the one who ignores instruction and the one who heeds it. And we need to be those who heed instruction, not those who ignore biblical instruction because the social and economic and relational consequences are also a real thing. Verse 18 says, Poverty and disgrace come to him who ignores instruction. But whoever heeds reproof is honored. We are looking here at an emphasis on social and economic and relational realities and that the decisions people make affect and have ramifications in those spheres as well he puts the results at the front of the verse in other words he didn't say the one who ignores instruction will come to poverty and disgrace he puts the results at the top of the verse poverty and disgrace comes to him who ignores instruction so these are the results financial disaster public shame let's think very carefully about the logic of this verse There's a couple wrong ways this could be taken. This proverb does not teach that if you see a a situation of financial poverty, you can imply, well, that person probably ignored instruction again and again. Sometimes poverty is the result of injustice. We see this in Proverbs 13, 23. In this very chapter, Solomon says, The fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it's swept away through injustice. So here's the fallow ground of the poor, and yet through the commission of injustice, the state of poverty remains unchanged, if not worsened. So sometimes it's the result of injustice. You can't just see a situation of poverty and determine causality. It doesn't work like that. There are many causes of poverty that the book of Proverbs identifies, including wickedness, always intending to do something with one's Speech in other words talking talking and talking but never actually getting down to the work sheer sluggardliness and laziness it tells us in Proverbs 10:4 a slack hand causes poverty but the hand of the diligent makes rich love of wickedness can cause poverty according to Proverbs 13:25 the righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite but the belly of the wicked suffers want So I think what we can do with these proverbs is we can warn from scripture that if you refuse instruction from God's word, if you ignore the reproof and correction that God brings to our lives, you should not be surprised if in your future come public shame and financial disaster. And that's because to reject the way of wisdom is to pursue the ways of folly. And folly Has practical, disastrous effects in our lives. This instruction here, this word instruction, can mean discipline. What if we use that term, the synonym here? It says in verse 18 that poverty and disgrace come to him who ignores discipline or instruction. We're reminded by implication here. We don't always know the way we ought to navigate our lives, we need instruction. We need the discipline of God's word. We need the help and sound counsel of others. Have you ever been in the situation where you tried to be a voice of reason and instruction and reproof to someone who refused to hear it and some time passed and everything you warned about took place? Everything you told them that if you do this, don't you realize this is what's down that road and disaster again and again? It tells us here in verse 18, Poverty and disgrace come to him who ignores instruction. Here is someone then who is in a sphere of life where godly and sound counsel is being given to them. Friends, that's a place of mercy. They are in a place where someone who fears God knows his word is trying to instruct and guide and bring correction that they might walk in the light and in righteousness instead of foolishness. So here's a person who's in that situation and they ignore it. They ignore, they ignore instruction. It says in verse 18, but whoever heeds reproof is honored. So both people in verse 18 hear, only one heeds it. The other ignores it. The one who heeds, that simply means to submit to with obedience. That that becomes the thing they then do. Not because it's easy. Not because they don't have a competing desire saying, I don't really want to do that. It's because they know it is the right thing to do. It is what is wise. It is what is best. It's what will honor Christ. It's what will be on a path of life and righteousness. So if instruction from the word of God is ignored, what's the predictable result? Proverbs thirteen eighteen says disaster. That's the predictable result. What about somebody who heeds godly reproof? Well, the word reproof is a word that means correction. Oh, well, we all need reproof. Okay, There's not any of us immune from the need of reproof. We all need correction and instruction. We all need to reflect on the word of God and the sound counsel of others that we might walk more wisely. So knowing all of us need this, those who heed this, what is the social and relational implication in their lives? They're honored. I don't think this is an honored by God, even though that that doesn't have to be uh, off the table. I think it's primarily a social and relational dynamic. They experience honor among friends and others. Rather than experiencing poverty because of foolishness, they experience honor because of wisdom. Friends, that's desirable. That's the path we want our feet to be on. We need to be people then who are cultivating Bible-shaped lives because we need our Bible-shaped lives to be um, uh, reproved and and even invited correction into by other people whose lives are being Bible-shaped. Jared Wilson, who teaches at Midwestern Seminary in Missouri, he says, Wilson says, if you accept the parts of the Bible you like and reject the parts you don't, it's not God you worship, but yourself. If you accept the parts of the Bible you like and reject the parts you don't, it's not God you worship, but yourself. Because you have become the operating authority, making all the determination. In other words, you're just doing what you want to do. It might just happen from time to time to line up with something you find in the Bible. Well, that's not you believing the Bible. That's not you submitting to Christ. That's not you living as a disciple. That's just you doing what you want. And the reason that becomes clear is because when the Bible says something and you don't want to do that, you continue doing what you want. We want to live our whole lives in submission to the whole word, that we would be prudent people in our choices, character, speech, and even in our relational implications, we would bring blessing to the lives of others. Not disaster, not ruin, but folly. What's down the path? We were talking about this last Sunday morning. The Bible sees farther down the road than you do. And the Bible's saying to you, if you're choosing to ignore instruction and you're pursuing folly, let me just tell you what's down the road. And maybe sooner than you think. Verse 19 is the last verse of our passage this morning. It's about desires fulfilled or frustrated. You see, the figures we're talking about here, the prudent person, the one in verse 17 who's a faithful envoy, the one in verse 18 who heeds reproof, They are like every person filled with desires in their hearts. Now, there are Eastern religions in the world present and past that minimize the role of desire in the human condition and would even equate desire as being something that is bad, something that you shouldn't have. We don't need let's get rid of our human desires. That's really where all the problem is. Well, the Lord has created us to be people with desires It's just that because of sin in this world and because we ourselves are sinners, we find that our our desires are affected by sin. Our affections and our hearts are not ordered the way that they ought to be. We find again and again our affections can be disordered. The writer here is talking about good and godly desires. Because of the experience that the faithful and the righteous or the wise have, in verse 19, a desire fulfilled is sweet to the soul. They're talking about that inner, that deep, gratifying feeling. Pursuing Christ, doing what is pleasing to the Lord, living out a desire that would honor God, a soul sweetness is attached to that. I think that's a helpful image. Sweet to the soul. We love things sweet to the taste. We're going to have a fellowship lunch in a minute. Are you ready? I'm ready. Sweet to the taste. And maybe you would say, well, I'm more of the savory. Okay, savory to the soul. Whatever, you know. The point is, whether it's sweet or savory, it's desirable. But don't you realize that not everything you desire is sweet to the soul? Because sin hides the hook in the bait. Not everything held out to you from the culture as a temptation or something to pursue is something one ought to commit to and live their lives for because the result is not a sweetness of the soul, but a toxicity and a poison in the depths of our being because that is what sin does. But godly desire, doing what is honoring to God, seeking to shape our lives by what is the delight of the word and the promises therein, The life lived in light of that results in a sweetness of soul and a satisfaction in Christ that is heavenly. It's heaven on earth. It's a joy in Jesus that's not unstable like our circumstances. Don't you long to experience that kind of affection in your heart and joy in your soul that's grounded in truth and knowing Christ? The book of Proverbs is pointing us in this way. The end of the verse, though, says, you know, and not everybody wants that. There are competing desires they find more compelling. And in verse 19, to turn away from evil is an abomination to fools. So if you said, listen, here's what would be best for your soul. Here's what would be best for your life. The path of you in your young years or in your older years, walk this manner." Here in the light with Christ and with the people of God, walk this way. Those who ignore instruction, not only in verse 18, can they expect disaster. In verse 19, they think the abandonment of rebellion is ridiculous. Notice the word the proverb uses here in verse 19, abomination. Now, you might have thought the proverb would say something like evil is an abomination to God, which is true. It says, to turn away from evil is an abomination to fools. In other words, here's what seems wrong to the person with disordered desire, disordered affections, of being with all, with all of our faculties affected by sin. Apart from the knowledge of Christ and the work of the Spirit through the Word of God, when someone says, you need to turn from what is sinful, they might think to themselves, but I want that. Why would I not do that? I'm committed to that. Look where it's gotten me so far, they might think. So the idea of repentance is crazy. That's what verse 19 is about, you see. Verse 19 is repentance. Verse 19 is about turning from evil. Well, turning from evil to what? Well, there's no vacuum there. It's about turning from what dishonors God in pursuit of knowing God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, committing oneself as a disciple to Christ it leads us to realize in our human condition in verse 19, our moral compass is distorted. Our affections can be disordered. And what we need is a deep work by the word of God and spirit of God and a work for the long haul that will direct us in righteousness. Not only in how we think about the state of our hearts, but the choices that we make and why we make them. The implications of our decisions on our lives and on the lives of people we're called to love and steward. Writer and theologian John Webster once said The Christian life is one long struggle to love what God loves. The Christian life is one long struggle to love what God loves, to fix our minds and souls and desires on the truth and beauty that is God. Well, friends, well, sin and temptation, they're the things with the deception. The Lord is faithful and his word is true. And Christ, full of prudence and wisdom, truth and glory and power, he calls us to come to him as his disciples. That as disciples, we would be growing up in him, formed in virtue and character. In other words, being people who walk by the Spirit.